Hello, I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels. And now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drrancats.com. I'm very excited for this episode of my podcast. My guest is Dr. William Deal Jones, commonly known as Bill. Full disclosure, I've known Bill for more than two decades, starting when we both taught at the same university. Dr. Bill Deal-Jones has a PhD in cell biology and is also, interestingly, a registered nurse. He's done research on diseases of prematurity, and he teaches pathophysiology and pharmacology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Athabasca University. He also has a podcast. His is titled, This is Your Body by Dr. Bill, in which he explores the inner workings and mysteries of the human body. That's why I invited him to talk to me today. I want to know about sex hormones, and I know that Bill knows a lot about them. So, Bill, let's first talk about the female sex hormones, and then we'll get to the male ones in a little while. You know, men often go first, but I do things a little differently. So, what are the female sex hormones? Where are they made, and what do they do? Okay, well, first, thank you very much, Dr. Katz, for inviting me on your podcast. It's an honor. Well, it's really interesting. This might surprise a few people. There are some of the hormones that most people have associated with females, such as estrogen and progesterone. But you may be surprised to know that women also make testosterone, and it's important for them as well. In terms of what they do, well, we can divide things up. Estrogen has really very global effects on the human body, from increasing cholesterol synthesis in the liver to uh, enhancing breast development, increasing muscle strength, and very importantly, increasing bone mineral density. And which is why most women, in fact, during menopause, when estrogen levels start to dip, start to also have problems with bone mineral density. Uh, There's a lot of other effects as well. Progesterone, it's especially important in maintaining the secretion and growth of the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. And it actually has a lot of protective effects to it. It decreases fibrocystic breast disease. It also has some protective value against uh, other types of cancers as well. So that's for starters. So you know we're going to talk about sex, right? Because this podcast is called Sexually Speaking. So what does estrogen do in terms of sexuality? So you talked about breast development. What else does it do? Well, what I didn't mention is that it also has some pretty significant effects on cognition and memory and, of course, libido in women. And sometimes a low libido may be associated with lower levels of estrogen. So from the reading that I've done, estrogen is the lubricant of arousal. (laughs) And certainly for women in the perimenopausal phase, and certainly for women after menopause, there are problems down there. 
So what exactly does estrogen do in terms of the production of lubrication? Well, this is really interesting because I actually did a little bit of research with a gynecologist pal of mine, and he was looking at women who'd had total versus subtotal hysterectomies and a couple of things. So if an oophorectomy is performed, we know that there's an atrophy. An oophorectomy means removal of the ovaries. There is a decrease in the activity of cells of the endocervix. Those are cells just around the cervix. As it turns out, those cells do a lot. They produce uh, mucus, which is one of the important lubricants for sex. They also increase or produce antibacterial peptides as well as immunoglobulin A, which are very important in vaginal health. So yes, estrogen's got some pretty key roles, both in libido and as well on organs involved with sexual activity and maintaining and repairing lubrication. So interesting. So, you know, I've always been told, and certainly in big pharma out there, that testosterone is responsible for libido in women. And there have been multiple studies uh, looking at giving women testosterone after uh, menopause or for women who have decreased libido. And quite frankly, most of these studies have gone absolutely nowhere. So you're suggesting that it's estrogen more than testosterone. That's really interesting. Well, there's a little caveat here. There's something I didn't tell you, which is super interesting, I think. So you'd ask me where estrogen is made, and I hadn't really answered that yet. But what I can tell you is that it's primarily cells of the ovarian follicles, and really a follicle is a basket of cells around something. And in this case, in the ovary, it's a basket of cells around the oocyte. And there are two types of cells, theca cells and granulosa cells. Now, this is where it's interesting, I think. Theca cells produce androgens, which are precursors of male sex hormones. Granulosa cells take up those androgens in the form of androstenedione, and what do they do with it? They make estrogen. So there's certainly a connection between testosterone or androgen levels and estrogen levels. So I would say that estrogen is probably much more directly related to arousal and maintenance of mucus production and, and, and associated things. Hmm, that's so interesting. So you talked a little bit, we talked a little bit about what happens as women age. Certainly, we know that there's a decrease in estrogen, which leads to memory problems. Hello, lose my words all the time. Cognition, you know, I'm probably not as smart as I used to be or as not as smart as I think I was. But certainly vulvovaginal dryness, a real issue for women post-menopause. And that's associated with a whole host of sexual problems, including pain with intercourse or sexual touch, which then obviously relates to loss of interest, because why would you be interested in something that hurts? What else happens? With respect to estrogen? Yeah. So here's what we know about menopause. Of course, there are decreases in estrogen, which happen for a variety of reasons, mainly around the whole hypothalamus, pituitary, ovarian axis. So that'll result in lower estrogen. Also, there's a down regulation or decrease in the receptors that bind to estrogen. But it's not just simply a decrease in estrogen. There actually, around the time of menopause, is a great fluctuation in estrogen levels. And it's thought in terms of the effects of estrogen and the things that happen around menopause is that it's not just a decrease in overall levels, but also wildly fluctuating levels. And as with all things, it's a matter of balance. So 
some of the dryness and atrophy that you speak about can more or less directly be related to either decrease in estrogen, but also fluctuating estrogen levels. So the cells that normally produce lubricants and other factors of the endocervix simply decrease with time. So let's talk hormone therapy, what we used to call hormone replacement therapy, and that term has certainly gone out of fashion. What can women do in terms of these issues with menopause, cognition, memory, certainly the sexual side effects of atrophy and dryness? Well, I'm going to be very careful here and not give clinical information. I'm I'm a garden variety physiologist, (laughs) Uh, even though I'm a nurse as well. I'm, I'm a physiologist, so I won't offer medical advice, but I will say that estrogen supplements and the like have found some favor. There are things for and against that idea because, well, we do know that estrogen therapy can help with issues such as losses in bone mineral density and can help with sexual function. We know that. But as with anything, there are factors for and against that. For example, we know that with certain types of hormone therapy, if I can call that for a minute, there are, rather there is an association with elevated risk of certain cancers. So one has to always, with these therapies, and any primary healthcare provider will always balance risk versus benefit. As well, it's not just a matter of throwing the whole pharmacopoeia at women to try to fix whatever is wrong. Of course, it's not just a purely endocrine function. There is also a cognitive part of this. And I won't speak specifically about herbal supplements because, well, my personal belief is that herbs are drugs if they are effective in one way or another. But there are some supplements which have been touted with various levels of research backing that up, which can help improve. And there's also been some talk of phytoestrogens as being helpful. But again, the data is not quite as clear on that. It's difficult to do those kinds of studies. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking about the whole yam thing, right? Yam (laughs) is purported to be a phytoestrogen. And, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if you're supposed to bake them and then mush them up and spread them all over your body. But yeah, you know, I think and I take your point about not giving clinical advice. As always, speak to your primary care provider, educate yourself and then make an informed decision is really important. Okay, so let's talk about men. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, We are different, but we're not so different as you might believe. And let me tell you why. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, all of those are found in men as well, just at different levels. But again, as a physiologist, what's super interesting to me is some of the same endocrine pathways that are in women are are really essentially very similar in men. So if I'll just back up a bit, we know that the hypothalamus produces something called gonadotropin-releasing hormone that in turn stimulates part of your pituitary gland called the anterior pituitary to make two hormones, FSH, your follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH, luteinizing hormone. Now, in, in women, LH induces theca cells of the ovarian follicles to make androgens, and FSH increases the activity of the granulosa cells, which are the ones that actually turn androgens into estrogens. If you compare that to what's going on in men, well, they have the same hormones being produced in the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary, just different targets downstream. So in men, luteinizing hormone instead 
stimulates cells in men called Leydig cells, and those are the ones that produce testosterone. And FSH in men stimulates other cells in the testes called Sertoli cells, and they're the ones that help sperm development. So there's a lot of similarity, just different downstream targets. So sperm are kind of like eggs or ova, right? Yes, they're both, indeed, they're both germ cells. And so it's not surprising then that we have some of the same pathways conserved in men and women, which regulate the, the formation of germ cells and then gametes. So what happens to men as they age? Other than they get to well, look more handsome. I don't know what that's about, but it's not fair. <laughs> I think women get to look handsome as well. I'll just Okay, we do not uh, want to look handsome. Well, just well, saying. Handsome reminds me of like, you know, an old aunt. <laughs> Homely. <laughs> okay, I think men and women both, in my opinion, get better looking as they age. It's like a fine wine in either case. But <laughs> I digress a little bit. Just remember, you started that. You know, it's interesting. This notion of andropause, which is a situation somewhat analogous, if not homologous, to menopause, it's not totally, I mean, there's some controversy about that. But what we do know is this. If you are a male at the age of 25, your testosterone levels are at their peak. Well, that's maybe not a surprise to most people. But there's a rather predictable fall so that by the time you hit 60 and I'm 62, I'm just saying, testosterone levels are half of what they were when they were 25. And testosterone has got a lot of different effects. It's, of course, both in men and women, it adds to muscle strength. It also has a trophic or growth effect or an anabolic effect, as it were, on on a variety of tissues. And so, not surprisingly, some things like erectile dysfunction in men do increase with age. And there is, of course, a link with testosterone levels. You know, you've raised the topic of erectile dysfunction. It's actually not something that I've dealt with on this podcast, and and it's certainly something that I will in the future. You know, as you mentioned, this whole notion of andropause is controversial, certainly came into general discussion around about the time of the development of testosterone gel. So as a supplement, right? Previously, if you wanted to give a man who was hypogonadal, right, so who who clinically Mm -hmm. had very low levels of testosterone, you'd have to give them pills, which didn't work really well because it had to bypass through the liver and it wasn't effective, or injections which produced rapid rises in testosterone and then decreases. So when testosterone gels came around, suddenly this whole thing of low T, low testosterone became very popular, as did the concept of andropause. So honestly, do you think andropause is a thing? In my opinion as a physiologist, I don't really think so. I will tell you why. So with menopause, there's of course a perimenopausal period, but usually a fairly distinct period of time in which we start to see fairly rapid drop off in estrogen and changes in various physiologic functions in women. In men, it's more of a gradual decline. There's no real threshold where you say, okay, well, now we've reached andropause because there's no such marker with men. Clinically, there's no such marker with men. Okay, you have andropause. We can't make a reductionist equivalence between low testosterone level and andropause because it's such a gradual thing. We know there are changes in men and changes in in women as we age. But with men, 
I would side with the people who, who think that andropause is really not quite the same thing. I would prefer just to think of it as age-related changes in, in uh, male sexuality and male uh, physiology. Yeah, it's so interesting that you mention this, you know, linking back to erectile dysfunction. Before 1999 in Canada, where Viagra was, was approved and released, when men complained of changes in erections, changes in energy levels, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they were told, this is a part of aging. Just live with it. And then along comes the little blue pill, and suddenly there's no such thing as sexual aging. And I think that has also been applied to women, that you're supposed to be as sexually active, sexually interested, sexually able in your 60s, 70s and beyond as you were in your 20s or 30s. You know, so is this real or is this a fabrication of the pharmaceutical industry that wants to sell us stuff? Well, there's no doubt that pharmaceutical industries are, are businesses and they do want to sell you stuff. I think, however, the question really revolves around if it's a naturally occurring age-related thing, should we be treating it? But I would also take the stance that, you know, there are other things that occur or physiologic changes that happen associated with age. We know, for example, our blood vessels with age start to build up with in most people, some atherosclerotic plaques. Does that mean because it happens naturally with aging, we shouldn't treat it? And it begs another question. If it affects one's quality of life significantly enough, because we know also, of course, and, and I don't have to tell you that changes and decreases in sexual function are also associated with other issues such as depression. So the question then is, well, if we can treat it to good effect, should we not? But again, I would say as a non-prescriber here, I want to be very careful. It's always a matter of risk versus benefit. And that has to be really a conversation between the patient and the primary healthcare provider who is providing, in a good world, patient-centered care. You know, I agree with you. And I think that we know that with increasing age, our blood vessels get stiffer and not in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that the penis is the canary in the coal mine for heart disease. So there's really strong evidence now that if an otherwise healthy man, so a man who doesn't have, for example, diabetes, if he presents to his primary care provider with changes in erections, the wrong thing to do is to write a prescription for an oral medication to help with erections. The right thing to do is a full cardiac workup because it's called the penile arterial theory that the arteries, the blood vessels supplying the penis are teeny, teeny, tiny compared to the blood vessels everywhere else. So you will see changes there before you may, for example, see increase in blood pressure. I think that's fascinating. And just anecdotally, I was presenting on this topic at a conference and there was a pharmaceutical industry rep at the back of the room listening to my presentation. And after I was done, he came up to me and he said, okay, so how many times does that have to happen to make me worried about this? And I said, him, Dude, just, just go to your primary care provider and get checked out. Obviously, he was having some issues and was really worried about it. So I think we're agreed that replacement of any hormone should be done under the supervision of a prescriber with informed consent and careful consideration because everything has side effects. But I would, I would also say this too. One thing we teach our nurse practitioner students to do is to take a holistic look 
at the person. And I don't want to dwell just on men, but for example, we know that low testosterone and erectile dysfunction aren't the only things that can be going on. We know that diabetes or metabolic syndrome, increased visceral fat makes more leptins, which can decrease testosterone. And there's this whole issue of aromatization of tissues in men, which can be due to a number of other factors as well. And simply prescribing a pill and expect the problem to be fixed, whether you are a male or a female, I think misses the larger picture sometimes. Yeah, I would agree. So I promised in the intro that there's no sensationalism, but I read this article in a medical <laughs> journal and man, it just totally fascinated me. This article spoke about the association between men who cheat on their partner and levels of testosterone. Basically, they found that men who had higher levels of testosterone were more likely to cheat on their partner. I thought that that was so interesting. So, you know, when you meet somebody online, perhaps, you know, should you be requesting not only that they have an STI check if you're going to be with them, but we measure their testosterone as well to see their <laughs> trustworthiness. <laughs> well, okay, but to suggest that is to also suggest that we are merely slaves to our hormones. And to some extent we are, but I like to think that we are capable of exerting some choice in the matter regardless of our uh, hormone levels. So that may be true, but I think that shouldn't be necessarily a criterion. If I was asked for my testosterone titers, well, first of all, I would make sure that it was done in the morning. <laughs> that's when testosterone levels peak. But also I would think, well, that's not, not your business. When these testosterone gels were first approved and released, there was a lot of advertising about them. And as you know, I uh, do a lot of my work uh, with men who've had prostate cancer. And um, for men with advanced prostate cancer, what we do is we give them medication to cut off their supply of testosterone because prostate cancer is an androgen-dependent disease. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're seeing these ads on television and in newspapers and magazines, and certainly my patients often arrive in my office when I was still seeing people in my office, you know, with a scrap of newspaper, with an article about something or other. Anyway, so they release testosterone gel is approved, much easier to use, something you can do at home. And I start to think about who is being prescribed testosterone gel. And is it being done in a manner that is supported by evidence? So when you look at the treatment of hypogonadism or low testosterone in men, the recommendation, the guidelines are that before a man starts with testosterone supplementation, first of all, he needs to have his testosterone levels measured. He also needs to have his PSA measured. Mm -hmm. And he needs a digital rectal exam to just check out his prostate, something that all men look forward to. So it got me to thinking about, you know, was this really being done? So my husband, as you know, is a health sciences researcher, and he works with huge administrative databases. And here in Canada, every time you fill a prescription, see a healthcare provider, have any kind of test, it all goes into this massive de-identified database. So we looked at prescriptions of testosterone and we then link them to the individual man without knowing his name or anything. And we then look to see if his PSA was being measured, if he was having a digital rectal exam, and was all of that happening? 
Well, needless to say, it wasn't. Mm. Uh, but what was most interesting was that we found that 25% of prescriptions that had been written for testosterone were written for women. I was so surprised at this that I asked, told, suggested that we run the analysis again. Testosterone is not approved for use in women, not in Canada, not in the US. So this was off-label use of testosterone, which I found absolutely fascinating. 25% of the prescriptions, and there were a lot of prescriptions written, were for women. Any thoughts, Bill? Well, yes. My thought is, as we are moving, hopefully moving into a more evidence-based world, I would be hoping, but I know this is not true, that clinicians universally would be bending to the evidence. For example, what's in the Cochrane database? What is the evidence supporting that? Does, is there a meta-analysis that shows that this actually has an effect? And I think still, even though back in 2015, I think Morales that all uh, wrote a you know, the guidelines for testosterone supplementation in men, and they do very clearly suggest doing baseline PSAs and a DRE, because as you point out, testosterone has a, an androgenic or trophic effect on prostate cells. It's also an absolute contraindication if a man has prostate cancer. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's not always done. So here's your pill. And I would hope that we can get to a place where if women are being prescribed off-label testosterone, that is actually based on empiric evidence and not just clinical intuition. So tell me, what are the side effects of testosterone in women? So if we give a woman supplemental testosterone, whether it's in a patch or a gel or whatever, what might happen to her body? Well, it's interesting. There's a disease, which I know you know about, called polycystic ovary disease. And really at the heart of the pathophysiology of that disease or the disordered physiology of that disease is excess androgens. And so we see things like hair growing where it ought not to grow or hair loss where you'd rather that not happen and a variety of other effects. So yeah, there are definitely side effects of hyper androgenism in women. And there are several syndromes where some of those side effects are very evident. Again, it's a matter of balance. And I always tell my physiology students, everything's connected to everything. And too much of a good thing is not a good thing. I think it's a matter of balance in all things. Bill, you were really being polite. And certainly polycystic ovarian syndrome is some of those symptoms or some of the signs that people have, hair growth, particularly facial hair growth. But some of the side effects for women using testosterone include enlargement of the clitoris, mm -hmm. uh, which might make wearing a swimsuit perhaps a little awkward. And, you know, so it definitely has some sexual side effects as well. And, you know, I think we just really need to be careful about anything that we put in our bodies. Because as you have described so eloquently, the body is just this complex, complex organism where mm. things are linked and they're negative and positive feedback loops and, you know, just absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I'm not sure that high school students are going to be listening to this podcast, but if there's anyone listening who has a teenager in high school, you know, don't ignore your biology classes. <laughs> you can carry the information with you through the rest of, of your life. So, Bill, thank you so much. 
That's it for this episode of Sexually Speaking. Remember, you can check me out on my website, www.drandcats.com. I welcome comments, suggestions, queries, and that's it till next time.